Just a warning, this episode may contain language or topics that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. We're going to talk about sex today. Yeah, I guess we are actually. I was going to say, no, we're not. We're not talking, but we are. We're talking. We are actually talking about sex today. Well, more specifically, sex work, not just like sex. Sex work as real work and why it needs to be decriminalized and also just the history of it and also the different kinds of sex work that exists in the U.S. It's very fascinating. Not going to lie. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something that I've always wanted to know more about. And this was a really exciting episode for us. I was just really excited to talk about sex, y'all. Okay. So yeah, so we wanted to talk about sex work. So we found a sex worker or escort to talk to. So we dug deep on the internet looking for somebody to talk to about sex work. And we found Maggie McNeil. She is a semi-retired sex worker. She's an author and an activist. Maggie has a well-known blog online called The Honest Courtesan, where she blogs about her sex work and her personal life as well. We covered a lot of ground with Maggie, so it's best to just dive right in. Let's do it. Maggie, thanks so much for talking to us. Very welcome. Really excited to talk to you. Thank you. The field you're in, you see a lot of different kinds of people. You're, sure. You have different kinds of conversations with them, so you can't really work on a script, right? No. And especially because, I mean, there's there's so many different kinds of sex work, but the, the kind that I've always done is, is what they call GFE, the girlfriend experience. In other words, it's you know a lot more conversation and a lot more kind of just like a, more like a regular date. Um, I've heard then, of that. Yeah. And so it's, and especially because I do have a couple of degrees and I'm educated and I write and stuff like that. So a lot of my clients have always been guys who want more conversation. You know, you they don't just see, they can see anybody if they want just, just sex. But if you're seeing Maggie McNeil, you want to hear Maggie McNeil talk. So I, I, yeah. I have to be ready to talk about whatever. To start off, just love to hear about your story, how you got into the field. Uh, so just if you could, you know, start sure. off with a monologue of your life. With a monologue of my Mono- life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this could be long. <laughs> I'll try to keep it short. Um, I, I started dabbling. I started dabbling in sex work in January of 1985. Yes, you're allowed to go to yourself. Boy, she's old. But I started then. I was 18. And my mother and father had agreed to pay for my college tuition, but that was only, they would only cover all expenses if I stayed in the dorm. Well, it turned out I hated the dorm. So I wanted to go to an apartment, but they said, no, we'll handle your tuition, but we'll not pay your rent. And, um, and so I had to kind of figure out how to, you know, even with 1980s New Orleans rents, I did need extra money. And the first couple of years I did it, it was just, it's what the, the, the literature calls casual prostitution. In other words, it, I didn't take out ads. I didn't make a career of it. It was more like when the opportunity arose and I kind of got a reputation. Guys knew they could approach me with it, you know, but again, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a business. It was more just like a way to bring in extra money. And I stopped doing that when I very stupidly accepted a marriage proposal at the age of 20. So don't <laughs> do that. 
don't do that. No, no. Anybody listening, if, if you're 20 years old, don't don't do that. But so, you know, we got married in, what was it, 92? Yeah, 92. And so, you know, for a few years, I did the whole standard job thing. I had gotten my degree. I went back. I got a, a degree in library science for my second degree. I worked as a librarian. And then uh, my first husband left me with $90,000 worth of bills on a 20 some odd thousand dollar a year librarian salary and something had to give. So in autumn of 97, I started stripping, did that for two years. Didn't particularly like it. I was not a particularly good stripper and just, it was just too much work. You know, it was just too much being up there all night long, you know, just, just too difficult for me. And so I'm, I find like I'm just really much better. A friend of mine, uh, Mistress Matisse has an expression. She says, I'm better in the room. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm like that too. I, that's why I don't do porn. I don't do phone sex. I'm much better face-to-face in the room, one-on-one. You know, that's where I, I work. And so in uh, January of 2000, I started doing agency escorting, which slowly over the years, as the internet uh, advertising expanded, I switched over to independent, to doing an independent escorting on, on the internet. I had an agency from 2000 to 2006, but once I saw the writing on the wall, you know, agencies were kind of dying off. And I said, well, no need for this anymore. So I closed it and I semi-retired at the very beginning of this year, I decided because I, I because I'm funny that way. Again, it's, I'm sort of OCD. No, I'm not sort of OCD. I'm very OCD. I started full time on January second, two thousand. So I retired. I semi-retired on January second of this year. Twenty-one years. It works for the military. Works for me. <laughs> so, so it was my semi-retirement, and I still see clients, but only guys I knew. I already know. That was going to be my next question is what does semi-retirement look like? You don't take on new clients. Yeah. I don't take on new clients anymore. I don't. And the reason for that is, is, was, was really pretty simple. It's that a few years ago, well, for a long time now, the powers that be in the United States have been persecuting sex workers. That's been going on since the 1910s. And a few years ago, in the early part of this century, we started seeing this this whole sex trafficking thing going on, where they what, what it's people who basically realized that the general public was no longer accepting the old excuses. The general public was not accepting the ideas of oh, this is immoral and and all this kind of all these sorts of excuses. People were developing the attitude that. What somebody does with their own body is their business. What two people do in private is their business. And since the general public was adapting that attitude, the prohibitionists began to realize that they had to change the narrative. They had to act like somebody was being hurt because the majority of people were saying, if it doesn't hurt anybody, who cares? So they came up with this whole concept of all sex workers are oppressed. All sex workers are victimized. We're all enslaved. We all have pimps, blah, 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 blah. And that's been going on since the, you know, the beginning of this century. It finally started, it has finally, it has finally started the past few years to kind of begin to fade out. We're seeing more and more of the media now beginning to pay attention to sex workers. Social media has helped tremendously. Social media is, has given sex workers an opportunity to just be ourselves online. And so folks who wouldn't have known anything about sex work can can follow me on Twitter or can follow any one of thousands of sex workers on Twitter and and hear what we have to say for ourselves, not have to hear it through a filter, not have to hear what other people think about our lives. But at the same time, you've got in 2018, 
this law FOSTA was passed, which basically made it extremely difficult for websites to, to be open to sex workers. Twitter is still doing it. A lot of other websites have, have basically closed their doors to sex workers. And that, despite the fact that the general public is, is becoming more sympathetic to us, the government is still in the same position it ever was. And so it's, it's gotten to where it's gotten harder and harder and harder and harder to advertise. Uh, they're closing down advertising venues. The advertising venues that still exist are making, are setting up more and more and more and more hoops for sex workers to jump through. So it's to, to cover their own butts, just in case the, the, the feds come calling. Because nobody wants to have the same thing happen to Backpage happen to them. I was literally so, about you, to ask about Backpage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. That's Backpage. And I never used Backpage, but, but you know, I'm familiar with it. And so what happened is basically in 18, I just started getting to the point where I'm like, you know what? This is too much trouble. <laughs> I don't want to deal with all this advertising anymore. I want to deal with this. It's, it's just too much. And every time I turned around, it was something like I even had my own web host for my own personal website come uh, you know, write me an email and say, oh, well, Maggie, we're going to have to require certain changes in your website to continue hosting you. And here's a list of banned words. And th- I'm like, yeah, no, no. Banned no. words? Oh, yeah. Words we can't use anymore. Like one of them being courtesan. <laughs> Couldn't use courtesan. And so the this I'm like, no, my website is called The Honest Courtesan. So of course, on my personal website, it's going to say Maggie McNeil, The Honest Courtesan, because that's how I'm known, right? It's my by name. You think I'm going to change that? It's like, no. So I found um, a, a sympathetic web host in England that oh, I was wow. able to switch my site to. American sites just won't, won't anymore. Really? Oh, it's bad. It's really bad. And so it's just got to the point, like I said, where I just, you know, I'm like, no, you know what? It's time for me to semi-retire anyway. So I just, I think in any job, and this is not just sex work, this is any job. The way to prevent burnout is to figure out the parts of the job you don't like, the parts that irritate you, and get rid of those if you can. And for me, it's it's the advertising stuff. It's the marketing okay. stuff. I don't like writing new ads. I, I, I'm not good at it. I'm not good at praising myself in ad cop. I'm not good at thinking of clever ways to do marketing. I really don't like having to deal with all the um, the hoops that web you know that the advertising websites want. I don't want to for the 18th time give you more information about myself than you had before so that you can build up this dossier or whatever. I don't want to, to, to have to deal with guys calling me on the phone that, have, that don't even know what I'm about and they're just, hey, baby, or sending me texts at 2 a.m. saying, avail, question mark. <laughs> and so done, so done with that kind of dumb stuff. I don't think a lot of them quite get how much older people are often turned off by text speak. I'm really oh, turned off. No, no the, it's the, I- it's uh, even me and I'm not even that old. like I honestly if you can't write a complete sentence I yeah just, exactly <laughs> no exactly and, and and even though I'm I'm not an intellectual snob at the same time I'm like yeah you know if you can't write a coherent sentence I don't think you and I are going to really click I just don't yeah. you know it's just not going to happen it's like why are you even bothering to see me you know why why just no, <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Hey, you you have your clients that you're like, nope, you know what you want, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know I know what I relate well to. I know what I relate well to, and I know what what feels good to me. And when I see you know my guys that I, that I that are still my clients now, it's easy. It's almost like not even like working. It's like, oh, hey, how you doing? You know, and we haven't seen each other for a few weeks or a few months or whatever, and we go to dinner, we do our thing, you know, and it's just, it's just like friends. It's not like I have to perform so much. It's just me being who I am. And they're happy with that. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. And for one thing, I'm not nearly athletic enough. A lot of guys want you know, what they, what they call the porn star experience. You know, they want the, the hopping want, around. I, I they, can't they, do that. They want the air force, Amy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I cannot do that. Cannot do it. Nope. I couldn't do that when I was in my twenties. I certainly can't do it in my fifties. That's just, just no. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I've had friends who said like they would have gotten into like they wouldn't have mind going into like stripping or whatever. But they're like, it's just, it's. I mean, you have to be a little athletic to. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> and, and to do and to do PSC, you definitely need to be athletic. And and I was I was quite athletic in my teens and twenties. I'm not athletic anymore. <laughs> Age does begin to catch up with you at some point. Yeah. What's PSC? Oh, porn star experience. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. No, no, yeah. that's okay. GFE is girlfriend experience. PSC is porn star experience. You need to you need to learn the lingo, Chandra. Yeah, did. sorry about that. No, you so GFE watch- is it's kind of like a date, right? Porn star experience is basically. The guy it wants kind of the fantasy of kind of being in a porn movie. Like he's got the, you know, and, uh, and that's, boy, it's hard. I mean, I know girls who do it and, and it's, it, it's a performance. It's more on the unnatural side, right? For the girlfriend experience, that's more natural and that's more up your alley. I, I wouldn't use the word natural. I would use the word organic. It's more like it just flows. It's not something I have to script. I don't think PSC is unnatural. I just, it, it's not natural to me. You know, that, that's, that's sort of a thing. Sexual gymnastics have never been my thing. That's, I'm, I'm very blunt about it. You know, people will be like, guys will be like, oh, can you get on top? I'll be like, nope. Nope. <laughs> don't do it. I'm not good at it. Nope. And, then, and I'm like, you know, look, I'm good at a lot of things in bed. That's not one of them. <laughs> Not. Well, I mean, yeah, as long as you know your strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. and Exactly. You know. So tell us about your childhood. Oh, well, Dr. Freud. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, was, uh, I was raised in a, a small town in Louisiana, uh, about 35 miles west of New Orleans. The town I was uh, raised in had about 6,000 people in the 60s, and it had about 6,000 people when I went to college in the 80s, and it Still has probably about 6,000 people. It's one of those towns, you know, population's aging, but it's still about the same same thing. I was raised Catholic, big family. I was the oldest of five kids. And my parents believe very highly in education, sent us all to Catholic schools all the way through uh, 12th grade. And um, I was always kind of a, a strange child. Uh, I've described myself before online as, uh, as a child, I was kind of a cross between uh, Wednesday Adams and Hermione Granger. <laughs> so <laughs> I was goth before they had such a thing as goth. You were the OG, original goth. I was the OG, original goth. That's it. Yeah, oh yeah. my God, that was so <laughs> clever. I need to trademark that. I, I somehow think that might be hard to do. 
<laughs> but then I, uh, I went to uh, UNL when I was, well, I had skipped, I skipped sixth grade. I was in a little early and, my, and I have an autumn birthday. So uh, I, I was at 16. I was 16 when I arrived at school, 20 when I graduated, tried teaching for a couple of years. I didn't work out too much, um, the, the, especially because I was trying to teach high school and the, the boys seemed to view me more as a member of their dating pools and as an authority yeah, figure. Yeah, that happens. In, in two years of that was kind of like, yeah, no, doing something else. Um, and so I eventually fell into librarianhood. Well, I became a librarian and, and then the, uh, I didn't really think much about it as a professional career, but I was good at it. And the yeah. the uh, director said, you know, you ought to consider going back and get your, your library degree. And so I said, okay. And so I did that. But as far as my childhood, I mean, to, to go back, I mean, I think my childhood was, I'm not going to call it typical because I wasn't a typical kid. I would say it was not a highly unusual childhood. What I mean by that is, I've got friends that have told me about their parents and I've met their parents or whatever. And their parents were like friggin' gods of parenthood. Like, how did you get parents this good? Like, they just like these amazing beings. And 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 they, my friends still adore them, you know, even when they're in my friends are in their 50s or 60s and they still adore their parents, or whatever. So I've got those. I've got other friends whose parents were like a nightmare. And I was like, oh, my God, how did you survive this? Mine were neither. My parents, I think, were just, they did the best they could with what they had. They were high school educated, small town Louisiana, Catholic. It was the 60s. They didn't know what to do with me. They had no clue what to do with me. I was, I was a little weirdo. So I think they did the best they could under the circumstances. And I think we all have to come to a point where we try to be as, as honest about our parents as possible. I think it's part of growing up that if they were bad, we admit they were bad. If they were good, we admit, yeah, you know, I had an easy childhood. And if they were average like mine, we say, no, they were, they were okay. They weren't monsters. They weren't paragons. They were, they were parents. How weird were you, Maggie? Oh, weird. I was weird. Most of the kids in the neighborhood thought I was a witch and I encouraged what? that support. <laughs> Oh yeah, they all thought I was weird. Oh, and I encouraged it, right? Because when you're a kid, you're like, oh, oh, this gets me things, right? Because people are afraid of me. Hmm. So there was that, you know, I I never stopped talking. That that has not gone away, as you can tell. But it started early. I mean, I I just one of our parish priests asked my mother when I was probably about seven, was she vaccinated with a phonograph needle? <laughs> what? That was an old that was an old joke that an old kind of what they call now dad jokes um to imply that you talk too much you know, because my mom would never understand how my report card would come home and she's like how can you get all A's in the subjects and all C's in conduct? <laughs> because constant talking you know, never stops never never goes away and then you know in, in high school I kind of became a little bit more of a delinquent and we won't go too much there but switchblade in the purse that sort of thing almost got expelled very close uh, a couple of times but I eventually made it out made it through the other side got my diploma went to college twice <laughs> so, well, the first time I almost barely made it through. I mean, seriously, I, I graduated with the exact lowest B 
possible. Like, I mean, two, three decimal places. <laughs> if I had gotten one point zero zero one lower, I would have been a C. But then I think it was just because I was just so burned out on school. I was so burned out in school. I didn't want to, I just didn't want to try. I skipped classes. I was just, I was a terrible student. And by the time I went to library school a few years later, I was older. I had that gap and I got a 4.0 in library school. So there you go. Wow. You know, I think it was just, it was, it was, I was more in sync with it. It was more what I, I was ready. And you liked it. And I liked it. I did. And it was small classes. It was real small classes. It was more, you know, and, and I had liked even in, in undergrad, once we got into the 4,000 level courses, you know, I liked those. I did really well in those, you know, that, that brought up my GPA from the, the earlier years because it was small classes. It was a lot more conversational. It was more talking about, you know, my English degree was in English. So it was talking about the romantic poets and, and all this kind of stuff. And the class, everybody knew who everybody was. Because, you know, when you get to those upper classes, it's all yeah. that, you know, how many people are in that graduating right. class? Yeah. You know, 200 yeah. people, if that. Let's go back a little bit. I'm just wondering about your relationship with sex while you were growing up. That's a good question. That's a really good question. My, my mother, one of the peculiarities of my mother was she didn't want to talk about sex at all. And what I mean by that is not good. Not bad, not anything, just nothing. Uh, nothing. I didn't get the messaging, oh no, that's bad, don't do that, that's dirty, okay. you know, nothing like that. I got no messaging either way. And so by the time I got to high school, I was just sort of like when I would ask, uh, you know, if I'd ask a question, my mom would say something like, oh, you know that already, or oh, go look that up, or something <laughs> like that. Because you know, she knew I was a voracious reader and I could look right, it right. up. But but so it yeah, she just was uncomfortable with the topic. And so I think I didn't get a lot of the anti-sex programming that a lot of other kids got. And so I was kind of kind of free to, to go in my own direction uh, with that. Lost my virginity on my 15th birthday. And that was only that late because I made a promise to my favorite cousin who could see where I was going. And he was like, he was like, well, you just promised me not to actually have intercourse until you're 15. And I said, okay, I promised that. And then my 15th birthday, it was like, okay, I promised 15. Today I'm 15. Done. When and, did he have that conversation with you? When I was probably when I just had turned 14. Yeah, a little after. I was very, as I say on my blog, I, at one point, I was profoundly coquettish uh, when I was in my early teens. And it was, I was very plain. I was a very, very plain kid. I did not blossom until much later. I think I was 16 before anybody even started really paying attention. You know, but I wasn't, I wouldn't say I wasn't a homely kid. Well, I was homely when I was really young. But I mean, like in my teens, I, plain, plain is the word I would use. And then I'm definitely one of those women who has improved with age. You know, in my, in my teens, it was cute. In my 20s, it was either pretty or hot. I never started getting gorgeous or anything like that <laughs> until my 30s. And I didn't start getting stunning until my 40s. So I, I think it's, you know, some women just, 
it's just the way they improve with age. We actually had a conversation. <laughs> what was that conversation we had a few days ago about that? You and me? <laughs> yeah, we were talking about it. We are like, some people, it's like, you know, when they're kids, they might, uh, and then they get a certain, like, they have, like, their years where they're, like, really good, you know. Looking yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, I would totally agree yeah. with that. Well, um, I get that. I, mean, I personally think I was my best in my thirties. That's that's what I my I look at my pictures and I go, no, thirties, thirties. <laughs> that's not the general consensus. So, no? I, uh, my my bank account is glad and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like I blossomed when I was twenty eight. So. It's it, it's sometimes you can pick a year. For me, I, I really felt like I really came into my own at 34. 34, 34 was where I felt like okay. I was really. Mm. And that was just right after I'd started escorting. And I'm sure escorting had something to do with, you know what I'm saying, where I really felt a kind of a confidence that I had never had before. Not that level anyway. Um, I mean, I was confident, but not not like that you know i think you you have to have like a, a higher level of confidence in order to to do sex work to begin with i feel oh, like. yeah i think so yeah yeah you have to have yeah you have to be able to, to you have to know you have to know that you are worth paying for and and demand to be paid i mean that's where you have to be you, you can't you can't be in a position of oh do you think so no 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 you have to be like yeah well baby if you want to be with me it's going to be this much so you really have to take control. Yeah. Yeah, you have to. That's that's why it's so peculiar. So peculiar. The the the, the trafficking rhetoric is so strange because if you look at negative things people have said about whores throughout history that we're weak and victims is not there. Not there. I mean, if you look at the Bible or at you know moralistic people from the Middle Ages and things like that, the negatives about sex work is always that oh they're bold, they're they're you know they're they don't know their place, they're uppity, they're you know, it's all this kind of stuff, right? It's basically we're not wife material. Yeah, or we you're too strong. Yeah, right. That's, we're strong, yeah. you know, and that's always been always been the negative the criticism of sex workers from, from moralistic types. And so it's very strange to be living in an era when that's all chucked out the window and, oh, no, no, well, sex workers are oppressed and they're victims and they're, you know, they can't do anything for themselves. They can't even plan a trip without a man to do it for them. You know, they can't, because if, obviously, if they book hotel rooms, a man must have done that. If they book a flight, a man must have done that. If they put an ad on the internet, a man must have done that. Because we all know women are too stupid, or at least sexual women. I, I don't know, you know. Well, I mean, there's, there's always that issue with, with women being sexual, right? Oh, it's sure. Like when women are sexual, then it's, then it, there's a problem. There's something wrong. And, and that's true. You know, people do, they imagine that for a woman to be, especially for a woman to be pragmatically sexual, to be sexual when it's not connected to love or reproduction, right. you know, people just, they don't want to put their heads around that. That I can have sex for, for reasons that I reasoned out, not because my, my gonads are, are signaling me or because my, because I'm like, oh, so much in love or because he demands sex to prove that I love him or whatever, whatever the reasons people, none of those things. And 
And Zoe, you know, this kind of also goes back to, to your question of a little bit while ago, you know, what it was I like sexually? One thing that I always was like, and this is from the beginning, this is from when I was 15. I always used sex. I always viewed sex as performative, number one. And I don't mean like a porn star performative. Right, right. I'm talking about it's always been making the partner happy. Right. That's been the goal. Let me, let me make them happy. And so I've always used it as a form of, of kind of like, I've always used it for everything. And what I mean is I, I've used it to obviously to make money, but I, you know, when I was younger, I used it to be cool. I used it to fit in. I used it to say, thank you. I used it to pass the time. I used it to distract people. I used it just think of the way you can use sex. I used it for that reason. And so it wasn't, it wasn't until I got older, you know, that I started really saying, let me really monetize this. But it was always a practical thing for me. It was never, I never viewed it as a, a magic special thing. I never saw that, never got that, never, my head just was not there. It never has been. And it, it always a little, is a little alien to me. To, to read people talking about that. And you even see this in, in the, the, the so-called sex positive community. You even see that whole mystical, you know, I'm like, no, not, mm, don't see it. Not there. No, sorry. So I'm, I'm thinking that's your hormones, y'all. Uh, the, the, the altered consciousness. I don't think it's magic. I don't think it's spirits. I don't think it's, I, I know, I think it's just your hormones talking there. Do you feel like people see you as an as an enigma? Something just that's just um maybe like otherworldly? I get that sometimes. I do. I get enigmatic. I've I've gotten quite often. I've had guys on, on extended dates, you know, where I, I'll say something. And I had this is like remember two about two years ago, I had one of my regular clients. And I've been seeing this guy for three, four, five years at the time, regularly, real regularly. And I said something at dinner and he looked at me and he goes, you're like an onion. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, just every time I think I've gotten to, there's another layer, there's another layer, you know? So yeah, I get that. I think it is partly because I have a really active mind and it's really fast. And so I I've just come out with all this stuff and people expect me to be going in one direction. I'm going in a different direction, but I also think it's a lot of it is because of um, my way of seeing the world is not a real typical way. I don't think I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say it's a better way or a worse way. I just think it's a different way. I think it's, I like the phrase neuroatypical because it's not judgmental. It's not, it's me. It's saying, yeah, you're not typical. You're not better. You're not worse. You're just different. In the seventies, because I was I was queer. Or I still I'm still queer. And in the eighties, it was kind of like you know, as a queer kid growing up, I noticed these things. Right, you know, pay attention. Right, queer people were a punchline in the eighties. They were absolutely a punchline. They were not. Yeah. We had moved out of the time when did I say eighties? I meant seventies. We had moved out of the time when. Most people were really hostile to to queer folks, but society hadn't really accepted either. And so it was the joke period in the 70s. It was yeah. the, the gay character on the sitcom 
or whatever. And it wasn't until the like the early 90s that you started seeing more things of like characters who just happened to be gay. Right. But it wasn't their whole character. It was just a thing about them. And I think what happened during the 90s is you started having this drift, not just in popular culture like that, but in, in the bigger culture, that people started to recognize, oh, yeah, queer folks are not these weirdos who all live in San Francisco, you know, which was the joke in the 70s, right? When you said San Francisco yep. in the 70s, it was, yep. it was basically met gay. Yep. You know, it, it went from that to by the end of the 90s, you know, corporate sponsorship of Pride Parade. So there was a big you know, thing there. And I think what a lot of it was is people began to realize that queer people were not just some weirdos over there, that they were just like other people, that they were your friends, they were your neighbors, your sons, your daughters, your, your parents, your uncles, your, your boss, your workers. And I think where I want sex work to be is in that same position. I want people to and people are beginning to realize, I think, social media is doing that. People are beginning to realize it's not sex workers are just, you know, so Maggie McNeil is a nerd. <laughs> I mean, Maggie McNeil is a librarian. Maggie McNeil likes Star right. Trek. Maggie McNeil writes about Doctor Who. Maggie McNeil has a pet pig. You know, this, <laughs> these are not sexy, sexy things. These are just right. the normal stuff. Life. And I'm not unusual in that way. Most sex workers have, some of us have farms, some of us prefer to live in cities, some of us drive old cars, some of us drive fancy cars, you know, some of us drive pickup trucks. I drove a pickup truck to sessions for years, years, years. <laughs> what are you driving you know, now? Um, the car I'm driving now is a, what is it? A 2001 Saturn. Okay, so it's a sedan. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a sedan. Uh, I got a good deal on it. My uh, the car that's in my movie. I don't know if you've if you've seen my movie, um, The War on Horse. So you can see my my car at the time in it, which was a, a, a twenty. It was a two thousand Honda Accord, and oh, I love that car. But it started <laughs> to have problems, it was issues, and I realized it was time to 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 change it. And it just so happened that a girl I knew was getting rid of her car because um, she lived. On Capitol Hill, which is a really dense section of Seattle, and parking is crazy expensive. And she walked most everywhere. And so she was like, Why do I need a car? So she sold it to me for a thousand bucks. I'm like, Can't go wrong. Yeah, and that was like hell. two years ago. Thousand bucks for two years. I'm, I'm good with that. Not bad. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm good at that, actually. I, I For a very short time in 1988, from I want to say January to June. January to July, something like that. I actually sold used cars and uh, I learned about them. I, I learned all about cars and I can buy a, I know how to buy a good used car. Mostly had good used cars. That's what I, that's what I drive. I got a, uh, oh, I don't remember. It was maybe, maybe a month or two months in uh, a stripper came in to, to get a car and she, uh, she didn't want like the, just the cheapest kind. She wanted to finance something, but it wasn't gonna be a long finance because it was a used car. And I actually had to talk the finance company I was like, do you have any, because he didn't want to finance it. He's like, oh, it's a stripper. I'm like, do you have any idea how much strippers make? Do you know how much strippers make? And once I got her finance and got her car, she told all her friends. And so for like months, it was just strippers. And the male salesmen on the lot were all like, how do you get these? And I'm like, 
like, oh, here's one of Maggie's customers. You <laughs> opened up a can of worms. I did. I did. But you see, this is the whole, the funny thing is that even when I wasn't doing sex work, I was always kind of sex work adjacent. Right. Even when I wasn't, wasn't selling any more myself, I was dealing with strippers and, you know, I had friends who were, who was not. So it's always been kind of just a thing in my life. I remember when I was in college, it was a friend of mine who was, again, casual prostitution. You know, she didn't, she had never done it as a career. In fact, she was a biochemist. But her ex-husband was perennially late or missing on, on child support. And so whenever the bills would stack up, she would say, well, looks like it's time to do a couple of tricks. And she had a few guys that she could call on, you know, and she'd do two or three just to get yeah, a little bit of money. Yeah. money. And yeah. it wasn't, but it wasn't a big deal. And so she was kind of a role model for me in that because she was a good bit older than me. She was, I want to say 10 years older than me. She was, you know, a little older friend. So she, so this is what I was like. I was 18, 19. She was, you know, 28, 29. And um, I was kind of like, yeah, you know, that's, that's, yeah, that's good. That works for me. And she was taking care of her kids. Taking care of her kid. Yeah. Doing what she had to do. I mean, this is one of those things, right? This is another one of those funky things. The whole Madonna whore duality. And I mean, I have friends who have lost their kids, lost custody of their kids because the ex-husband told the judge that they were a hooker and the judge thinks this is incompatible with motherhood for some reason. 70% of sex workers worldwide have kids. The normal, the typical sex worker does have kids. That's, that's more the norm than the opposite. I mean, I don't, but that's not the norm. Yeah, I think anybody that I ever knew that actually did do sex work had children for the most part. Yeah. Well, it's it's children are a big thumb on the scale. You know, when our society has all this negative messaging about sex work and we all hear it, we all absorb it, right? And so for a lot of women, what it takes to push you over, what it takes to get you over your fears and your, you know, the worry about social, the, what people are going to say and all this kind of stuff is my kid is hungry. My kid needs clothes. My kid needs a roof over their head. And that trumps everything. That makes a lot of sense because that's a huge motivator. Sure. Yeah. You, 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 any, anything else pales into insignificance. I used to have a girl who worked for us when we had, when we had our agency. And she was 28. She had two children and a useless ex-husband, and a high school education. And she was very, very, very pretty. And so her choices, her, I mean, and this is going to sound brutal, but it's the fact. Her career choices were whore or cashier. That was it for her. Mm -hmm. And so for her, it was, it, she really had a beautiful arrangement, actually. She lived across, she and her mom, like she lived in the house next door to her mom, and they shared a garden. And her mother knew what she did. And she was a morning person. So in New Orleans, you get, there's actually a fairly brisk trade for girls who will get up crazy, ridiculously early, like at a time when I'm just turning over for the first time, you know, this five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock stuff. What? Oh, yeah. It's guys who've been out all night or it's guys who, uh, who are flying out that day. It's the last okay. day of their business trip. Gotcha. They check out yeah. at 11. But this particular girl was, she was a morning person. And so it didn't bother her. She'd 
go do. So she would go and do a couple of sessions. First thing in the morning, her children knew if you wake up and mommy's not here, go across the garden and bang on grandma's door. (laughs) And grandma was totally fine with that because grandma was also a morning person. And she was sitting there with her coffee. And what the girl would do is she just, when she was going to leave, she'd run across, bang on mom's door. Hey, mom, I'm going to run out to work. Okay. And by the time her children were up and around, she was done working for the day and she could spend as much time as she wanted because they were little, they were little, they were like, you know, four and five. Okay. So they weren't even schooled yet, but she could do all the mom stuff. She could take him to the zoo. She could color with him, whatever, you know, whatever you do with a little kid. And, and she could, you know, and, I, and I've known a lot of girls who, who said that that was the primary, most important thing for them in sex work was the flexibility. You know, the ability to be with their little children when they were little instead of having to put them in daycare. All. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I remember my like my childhood where I was in daycare. That's I just remember that. I really don't remember being that young and interacting with my parents. And it's good that they get that. They absolutely get that. And it becomes for for some escorts, it becomes a thing when the children are a little older. I remember one of my girls, she had two boys and the older one was, I want to say 12. So they were just getting to the age where they were starting to ask questions. Mm. Mom, what do you do for a living? <laughs> so what she did was she drove a minivan, right? Cause she was very much suburban soccer mom type. You know, she went out and bought a bunch of cleaning supplies, brooms and mops and all that, put them in the back of her van and told her sons that she did cleaning. So, of course, she had to go at weird times and disappear for an hour or two. <laughs> it was perfect. It was a good cover. Wow. It is, especially like when you have that like project in school where they're like, you know, what do your parents do? <laughs> right. Right. And it's just not. It's 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 still very much a thing. I and mean, we're, we're joking about it. And, and, and But the truth of the matter is, I was just working on a, um, yesterday on an article for my news column. You know, I do my news column twice a week. This is an item about a woman in Florida. I forget what her name was, but she, a uh, really very pretty young woman, 29, I think I want to say the article said she is, but uh, three kids. And she discovered they hit some financial snags. So she started an OnlyFans and discovered she could make a ton of money on OnlyFans. So she's like one of the big OnlyFans people. And when the other suburban moms in florida found out they made her life a living hell tormented her kids all all sorts of stuff Uh, some guy threw a punch at her husband i mean all kinds of stuff you know and so they're getting to move they're going to move to a different neighborhood but i'm like yeah that's because that still happens people still have these weird negative ideas you know they can't they simply can't and they would not do that to a masseuse right they wouldn't do that to a nurse but for some reason, as soon as you cross over into the body parts coded as sexual, people's minds go crazy. I mean, like for a masseuse, the biggest, strongest muscle in the human body is the gluteus maximus, your butt. And that, you, when you're going to rub somebody's back and all that, you, you need to rub that too. But our society codes that as sexual. Professional masseuses, as far as I know in every state, are legally forbidden to rub a customer's butt like a condition for their license they can't they have to agree not to rub customers butt the biggest muscle in the body 
So I have a question, Maggie, because, you know, this work affects many parts of your life uh, and your social life. So how has it affected your relations with your family? My mother, being my mother, when I first started stripping, which would have been in September of 97, my mother did not like this at all. And she raised the roof and complained and screamed and, and threatened. And, and she said to me one day, I remember saying, um, I'm just don't want you hanging around with women like that. And I go, mom, what do you think these strippers are about? What do you, it's money. It's making money to make ends meet. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to work the rest of my life at a pittance to pay off this debt. You know, would you prefer me to default to my debts? Because you didn't raise me that way. So it did not, I was uninvited from Thanksgiving and we kept talking on the phone for a while, but then she eventually put her foot down. I guess it was like February of, of 98, uh, where she finally said, you know, if you don't stop, you know, if you don't stop doing this and I'm never going to speak to you again. And she was as good as her word. She's never wow. spoken to me since. So it was 1998. One of my sisters I think all my siblings know what I do. I'm pretty sure. One, the one sister who is the most like me, who looks the most like me and personality is the most like me, uh, the other black sheep, she absolutely knows. And she knows very well. She knows all my contact information. If my mother ever starts making noises like, oh, gee, I'd like to see Maggie again before I die, you know, because she must be, she's going to be, she must be 80. Yeah, she's 80. If she wants, my sister knows she can get in contact with me and I will come. The only reason I, I'm not going to force my attention. I'm not going to go down there and knock on her door, try to force the issue. If she wants to see me, she will see me. So that was, you know, and my dad never challenged my mom. And what I mean by that is my dad was very much a romantic sort of a person. He was in love with my mother there to the day he died he just just that kind of a man and so when my mother said she's not talking to me he wasn't going to push he wasn't going to find out why he wasn't nope he just why right, he just accepted it i don't know if he liked it but he accepted it and some of my other siblings like you know it's we were never particularly close anyway because i was a weirdo i was a weird kid I was not particularly close to my other siblings. I was not, I was always kind of the outsider. Um, you know, they, they would do things and I would, I would not go. So that, it was a continuation, I guess you'd say, of a, of a pattern that was established already. I don't think sex work did anything that was not already in process. I think if my mom and I had been super close before, it wouldn't have gone quite that way. It would have gone differently. I think there was a part of my mom's brain that was kind of like, oh, her again. I'm done with this. So a catalyst more than a cause, you know, as far as, as my, my marriage, I, my second marriage was to a regular client. So he had no room to talk (laughs) 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 and it it was fine. And it really was fine. It may be that my job affected our marriage some, but it was not the primary cause of us breaking up. You know, and, and we broke up in 14. Uh, we were together for 14 years. And it was a very amicable, very amicable. We're still very friendly with each other. And I feel good about it, actually, because he still will call me or text me because there's things he he's married again. 
And if he has a sexual question, he can't ask his current wife because she's more conventional, which is more suitable for him, really. He's, 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 he's the kind of guy who needs a more conventional wife. Um, than I think I think I was a little too much for him to handle. I think he was more, I don't want to use the word infatuated, but I think he was, he didn't realize that what's exciting for one night or one weekend is not necessarily exciting to live with. You might, it might be fun to drive a sports car, but you don't want a sports car for your main vehicle, for your grocery getter. You don't want a sports car to have the dog pile in the back. And, the, and so I think I was too sports car. <laughs> um, novelty wore off in a way. Yeah, the novelty. Yeah, the novelty wore off, I think was part of it. And that's understandable. And I don't hold it against him. But so he will call sometimes, you know, he has a sexual question or something. And I'll explain it. And he's like, well, thank you so much for this. And I'm like, he's like, I can't, I can't talk to my wife about this. And I go, because she's not a whore. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you can't talk to her about this. The word prostitution is more derogatory. Just curious, you know, what you think about that. And people should be using the word sex work. Instead of prostitution. Prostitution is an extremely legalistic word. And prostitution, I mean, think about who uses the word prostitution. Politicians who are trying to outlaw it. Cops who are, you know, running around harassing sex workers. Prosecutors, judges. These are the people who use the word prostitution. You know, prohibitionists. And so the word itself is not particularly odious. It has... You know, the old expression, you know, um, I'm not going to do the Latin, but, you know, when you lie down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. Prostitution, that word has acquired this connotation from association with cops and prosecutors and nasty people who are trying to prohibit it. And so there's not too many sex workers that want to be called prostitute or that want our work referred to as prostitution. I will say that prostitute is still better than the so-called feminist alternative, which is prostituted woman. That phrase removes all agency. Prostituted implies a prostitutor. It implies someone else is doing this to you. You're just a victim. You're just passive. You're Given the negative stereotypes, the traditional one and the new one, I would much prefer to be a, a kind of scarlet criminal than I would to be pathetic, spineless victim of men. You know, if I, if I got to be one or the other, I'd rather be the witch, the witch than the, than the victim. The Wednesday Adams and Hermione Granger. Exactly. Exactly. You have Hermione's so, hair. I, I, yeah. <laughs> yes, I did. You do. Uh, this was uh, in the, in the seventies, I wanted to look like Farrah Fawcett hair wise. And because all the little girls did, my hair just wouldn't do that like at all. And and this caused me considerable stress at the time. But in the mid-80s, I just eventually gave up. I just said, it does what it wants to do. And I just, but but no, to, you know, to, to go back to the terms, I will use prostitute sometimes to shock people because it is a shocking word. And there's an example I'm, I'm thinking of. A few years ago, when the Seattle police did this big operation where they took down the most popular message board for sex work in town. And they put out all this nonsense propaganda, how they were rescuing the the sex slaves and all this kind of stuff. The whole narrative fell apart in no time flat, partly because sex workers 
immediately jump up and and start you know call like, we'll give you interviews to the to the to the press and things like that. So the narrative was being countered from right from the beginning. And we went and did a protest at the at their press conference the next day after this big sting. And so one of the uh, local TV stations was like, "Hey, can somebody talk to us?" And I'm like, "Sure." So we're standing in the courthouse. There's cops within hearing distance. And this is a, a, a the, the local station that I am informed, again, not a TV watcher, but I'm informed that they're the ones who are the most tabloidy, this particular network. And so this guy was trying to, to, to create scandal, right? He's interviewing me. And he's like, he said, well, are all these women, you know, pointing to, to the, the, the group, the protest, are all these women prostitutes? He goes, well, I said, well, we're all sex workers. And he said, what's a sex work? And I said, a sex worker is a person who sells erotic labor. I said, it could be a prostitute. I said, or it could be a stripper. I said, it could be a phone sex <laughs> operator. It could be, you know, anything like that. And he said, well, are you a prostitute? And I said, yes. Because <laughs> I mean, and the thing is, people have said, oh, that was very brave of you. No, it wasn't brave. It was stubborn. It was stubborn because this, this annoying little man was annoying me so badly that I kind of just wanted to go, yeah, I'm a prostitute. What do you care about it? You know, I, that was basically my, my whole, and I didn't <laughs> stop to think until later. Oh yeah, that was kind of a strange thing to do to say, I'm a prostitute on live TV across Seattle. It, it got some attention. I tell you for quite a while, I'd be in public places and people go, didn't I see you on TV? And I'll be like, <laughs> yes, I'm sure you did. Yes. And they didn't remember what you said? Sometimes they did. Sometimes they did. Yeah, okay. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they didn't. I had a, a, a I was getting a pedicure one day actually, and that the pedicure lady looks up and goes, "I saw you on TV," <laughs> and like, and then later, her husband, who was the owner of the salon, says, "Oh yeah," he goes, "The other night we watched TV." He says, "She's like that's our customer." She knew. She yeah. recognized. Sex workers get pedicures. Sex workers get <laughs> pedicures. We do all the normal stuff, right? Yeah. And. This is this is an, an important point to make is that there's a lot of sex workers who can't be out because like the lady in Florida, they've got kids, they can't risk having their kids expelled from school on bogus claims because the, the principal's prejudiced against sex work. They don't want to have child services up their butt. You know, they don't want this kind of negative attention. They don't want to have their mother disown them, right? Like I did. And so I think it's super important for sex workers like me who can be out to be out because not everybody can do it. And people ask me sometimes, you know, I have had so many cases, so many cases of girls come up to me or write to me and say, and actually be apologetic. Maggie, I wish I could be more out, but I'm like, don't, don't, don't. Do not apologize to me for not being out. I'm like, I am, number one, I'm old. <laughs> number two, I'm estranged from my family. I'm not married. I got no kids. All the, the, right. the so I don't, my, my, my parents are already estranged from me. I don't have kids to take away. And because I'm old, I don't have another career that could get blown out of the water in the future. You know, if you're 20-something and you're in college and you're studying to be a doctor, you don't want that blown out of the water because somebody discovers your, your, your porn site from a few years yeah. ago. 
I'm not going to be starting a new career in medicine. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not going into law next year. I mean, this is it. Any, any more, any future money-making activities are all predicated upon my having been a sex worker. You know, my writing is based on it. My public speaking is based on it. My consulting work is based on it. That's all. It, it all, it all springs from that one, from the, the original career. You're compassionate. Yeah. But, I mean, no, it, it, I mean, you have to be almost seed in this job. I say almost because the in any job there, you can treat sex work three different ways. You can treat it as a job. You can treat it as a profession. You can treat it as a vocation. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with treating a job profession. But no, what I mean by what I mean by job is you know a stopgap measure, something you do to get money to fill in a gap. Then a profession, it's something you do that you plan for a long time and get good at. But a vocation, it's something that you not only plan to do for a long time and get good at, but it's something that means something to you. It's something that, that a deep part of you. And like I said, being judgy about it, because I'm sure there are plenty of doctors who are only in it for the money, who are nonetheless crackerjack surgeons, but they're really good at it. Being a doctor because you're a healer does not make you a better doctor, but it definitely changes the way you look at it. And so for me, it's a vocation. Part of that, when you, when you have that view of sex work, it does need to, you need to be compassionate because you're, you're providing a caring service. You may not, neither one of you may be surprised when I tell you how many, how much overlap there is between nursing and sex work. I know a lot of nurses who have done sex work on the side, who did sex work when they were in nursing school, who had some kind of a, a, a financial disaster. So they did sex work again for a little while, even though they were still a nurse. Because think about it, both professions involve caring for other people in a way that, that you get paid for. And both professions require a lot of comfort with people's bodies. You know, sure. if you're a nurse, you got to be comfortable with a person might have maybe even poop on their butt when you're when you're trying to to do something. You need to be you need to, to understand that when you're examining a guy, he might get an erection right there. You know, you have to understand these things and accept these things when you're a nurse. And it's the same thing with being a sex worker, right? You you have to be comfortable with that. The human body cannot be something scary to you. And so that these things are very similar. Caring professions in general, there's a lot of overlap. I've known sex worker doctors who had did sex work to get through medical school, uh, psychologists, sociologists, social workers, teachers. I mean, lots of different, again, a lot of those caring professions. And a lot of traditionally feminized labor too. You know, when you look at it, there are a lot of traditionally feminine professions that overlap with sex work. Like therapists. Like teacher, not so many lawyers. You know, I don't. I don't know why. It, it, because you know, I I know a lot of lawyer guys on Twitter, and we often joke about the overlap between our professions. You know, that law and, and sex work are not that different, but we don't see so much overlap in the in the practitioners. As I guess is what I'm saying. Right. 
I'm kind of curious with the way that sex work is still kind of viewed by the media and by law enforcement and by, I guess, just general everyday people that still have an issue with it. I mean, it seems like it, it's just another profession, but mm-hmm. people seem to have this, this still this negative idea of sex work. They, they still demonize it. It, it. It's so many things involved in that. I think one of the reasons is that people, women who are not pragmatic about sex, women whose sexuality is very, very, very personal, cannot comprehend how we do it. They can't wrap their heads around it. They're like, so what they think is if another woman is doing that, somebody must be making her do it. It's got to be forced because I'd never do that unless I was forced. You get the soft version of that in these really silly things you see sometimes online where people be like, would you nude in a movie for a million dollars? Like nobody's going to pay you a million dollars to appear nude in a movie. Trust me. No, no. Drop that. Drop a few decimal places there. Yeah. Or <laughs> uh, like that movie. There's a movie from the, uh, the what was it, early 90s. Yeah. Early 90s. Um, an indecent proposal where Robert Redford offers Demi Moore a million dollars for one night. A million? Yeah, it's like, come on, y'all. You know, I'm a, I'm of roughly the same level of attractiveness as Demi Moore. And I guarantee you, nobody ever promised me a million dollars for an overnight. Drop some decimal places there, y'all. You know, but but so it's it's this part of the same thing, right? It's the idea that it's oh, it's so weird, it's so off the wall. It's like no, no, it's it's not. And so that's one thing. And I think another thing is that what I think the main reason, the main impetus of it is, you may notice that a lot of the most vociferously vicious vile attacks on sex workers come from the same women, the same kinds of feminists who also attack trans women. And I think what's going on there, and this has been, I wrote an essay about this years ago. Um, I called it policing womanhood. I think what it is, is that women in general tend to be more conscious of uh, women as a group than men are. And what I mean by that is you never see a guy seeing some other man doing something ridiculous and go, oh, he makes all men look bad. Guys don't say shit like that. But women say stuff like that. Oh, she makes all women look bad. And so I think what a lot of the the resistance to sex work is women who feel like we make them look bad. And that's why I think the the whole overlap with them hating trans women is too. Oh, those, you know saying all kinds of awful slurs that they make us look bad. They make women look bad. And you'll see it in the words they use. You know, they use these really pejorative words to indicate how they feel about us. Then they'll claim that it's, oh, men use them this way. Men think of them as as like, oh, horrible terms, uh, toilets. I mean, just awful things like collections of orifices, I mean, all these things. It's like, no, men never say stuff like that about us. It's other women. And I think that's what it is. I think it's that whole thing of other women, you know, having that that feeling like we make them look bad. And some people think it's also partly the idea of um, stealing husbands. I, I think most women know better than that. There are certainly some women who feel that way. My, my running joke is always like when some, some when stealing husbands, I mean, what do you think I do with them all? Stack them up in the barn like cordwood? 
I mean, I have no interest in your husband. You keep him. The whole point of this is that I don't have to go home with him. You keep him, baby. Look, I'm just providing a service here. He's the one who wants something else, unfortunately. Right. And so, well, and that's part of the problem, too, I think, is that it makes some women feel rejected. Mm -hmm. They feel like, why is he going to this other woman? this other woman for, you know, for, for what he could get from me. And I mean, it's a really complicated, it's complicated. Yeah. There's all sorts of reasons, you know I mean? Guys, they do it sometimes because the wife is not providing, you know, they've been together for a while. <laughs> she's not interested anymore. Sometimes she's sick. Sometimes she's just so repressed that he has some kind of sexual fantasy that she can't give him. You know, I used to have this this one client that the only thing he wanted from me was oral because his wife was incredibly averse to it. And it was weird because he had his own little set of ethics. He would not do intercourse with me because she did that. So therefore, okay. he felt like that would be cheating. But oral was not because it was something his wife wouldn't give him. So you get stuff like that and you get guys who just want the variety and and, you, and all sorts of things. The world needs to hear it, needs to get out there. It needs to be people understanding that this is not magic. It's not esoteric. It's not, it is called the oldest profession for a reason. We've been around forever. This is not changing. It's not going away. And in a sense, even though prohibitionists can be really obnoxious and, you know, they certainly are, they have made themselves my enemies, right? They want me dead. They want me gone. They want me impoverished. But my primary emotion when, when dealing with prohibitionists, honestly, is, is pity. I feel sorry for them because their entire worldview is bound up in trying to eradicate the ineradicable. To say, oh, well, I am fighting for a world without prostitution. It's like, good luck. Are you also fighting for a world without air? (laughs) (laughs) A world without death? (laughs) A world without food? I mean, there's some things that are just inevitable. And sex work is one of them. It's going to be here. It's going to be here as long as humans are human. Your idea, your fantasy of a world without sex is, is... is insane. It's deranged. It, it's, it's, and this is me watching Doctor Who saying this. There's some weird ass stuff in these shows, but <laughs> nothing as fantastical as going faster than the speed of light and scrambling your molecules to travel and, and bug eyed monsters. None of these things are as impossible as getting rid of sex work because it, it comes out of the core of what it means to be human. And that's not going away. What is sex work like in other countries besides, you know, besides this one? I mean, I know here we still have a pretty big issue with it, but some places here, Nevada, where things are a little different, but there are reasons as to why there, there's a reason as to why there's brothels in certain areas. But I know like Sweden or, or Netherlands have certain laws or rules regarding sex work, I believe. There are four basic models. This is broad. The four basic models of controlling or managing or whatever sex work. The one we've got in the United States is actually not common. It's if you look at criminalization, full criminalization, the idea that every activity around sex work is illegal. Other than the United States, this is practically an unknown model in large developed countries. 
It is only the only countries that, that have criminalization besides the United States are either theocracies. So in the Middle East, you know, in the Muslim theocracies, it's common. Former communist countries and current communist countries. So China, Vietnam, Russia, Cuba, and postage stamps. Little teensy teensy countries, you know, a lot of them, Monaco criminalizes. The least common method of, of managing sex work is the, is the best one, which is decriminalization. That is treating sex work as if it were just another kind of work. Regulating sex work businesses with the same kinds of laws you use to regulate any other business. New Zealand and two Australian states, soon to be three, are the only ones that have decriminalization. That's it. There are several other countries who are kind of close, but not quite there. The most common method is what's called legalization. Legalization is a misnomer, but that's what it's called. Under legalization, sex work is viewed as a crime for which the state makes allowances. So basically, the act of exchanging money for sex is not illegal, but practically every other thing around it is illegal. So in, in the former British Empire, uh, this is the norm. So this is the norm in, in every place that was ever a British colony. So Canada, Australia, India, Uganda, South Africa, you know, um, Nigeria, all these countries that were British colonies, the norm for those countries tends to be it's legal to sell sex. It's not legal to advertise it. It's not legal to have any kind of employees or facilitators. So you can't have a maid. You can't have a your landlord could be prosecuted as a pimp, that sort of thing. And it's illegal in general to keep a place where you see clients habitually. Basically, there was an office, right? But for some reason, and, and those are usually called brothels, even when they're not really brothels. So like in Korea, I think it's in Korea, that they call what we call an in-call. In other words, a, a place where you keep two C clients, like a, a little apartment or something. They call those one-woman brothels which is an absurd term because the idea of a brothel is that there's more than one. I mean, that's right. They call it because they're trying to fit it into a, a box. The most possibly dangerous method of the, is, uh, is the fourth one. And I say it's dangerous because of the implications. And that's the so-called Swedish model, also called the Nordic model. And more recently in the United States, it's pushers have been trying to sell it as the equality model, which I have no idea what they think that means because it's based in equal treatment. It's based in selling sex is supposedly legal, but buying it is illegal. And they want to call this equality. I'm not clear on what the logic is there, but what it's based in basically is it's based in the concept that, I'm sure both of you are familiar with the concept of statutory rape, that there's a certain age of consent if you have sex, if you're an adult and you have sex with somebody below that age, it is automatically considered rape of a form, even if the underage person was completely willing, initiated it, everything, because the adult is held to be the moral superior of the adolescent. The adolescent is held to be morally undeveloped, and therefore an adult does not have the right to have sex with a person who's underage. That's the logic. Under the so-called Swedish model, that is the same logic, but for adult read man and for adolescent read woman. So under the, the so-called Swedish model, 
women are basically held to be eternal adolescents that we're not able to consent to sex except in ways the state has declared are acceptable and for pay is not one of and so in those countries the the, the, the people who push this model they pretend that it's supposed to be feminist that it's supposed to be helpful to women it's like you're defining women as oral imbeciles you're saying that a woman when a man flashes money that a woman does not have the ability to say no that basically showing a woman money is the same as putting a gun to her head it's an insane viewpoint of human relations and it's an incredibly misogynistic the worst part about it is these regimes so far sweden norway iceland france canada Northern Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland, and I think Israel is, is talking, Israel hasn't done it yet, but they're on the verge of doing it. And these countries pretend that they're being so feminist. And they say, oh, we don't arrest women. But if you're going to arrest a sex, I mean, try to think like a cop for a second. If you were to arrest sex worker clients, what would you do? You stake out a sex worker's apartment. You surveil sex workers to see who comes to see them. And then you arrest whoever comes to see them. So it subjects sex workers to surveillance. It subjects sex workers to police intrusion because there are many cases in Sweden and in those other countries where the cops literally smash down the door of a sex worker in the middle of working, humiliate her, of course, and then they will sometimes, then they will hold her as a material witness. Oh no, you're not being, you're not in jail because you committed a crime. You're in jail because you're a witness. Sometimes they even define sex workers' bodies as crime scenes, which can then be searched. So figure that out. Also, they do stuff like, there was a thing in Norway called Operation Homeless. That was the actual name, translated name, where they sent letters to the landlords of known sex workers saying, hey, do you know that you can be prosecuted as a pimp? Maybe you should evict her. The idea was to get as many sex workers made homeless as possible. So there's that. Their husbands can be arrested. Their children are harassed or taken away from them. That often happens. There have been cases of student sex workers who were um, expelled from school because they were antisocial, because they wouldn't stop sex work. Sometimes there have been a few cases of commitment proceedings, because the state declares them, the state says basically, well, we're telling you that what you're doing is sick, and you won't stop. So therefore, you must be crazy. So there's all this stuff, right? They say that they don't prosecute women. And it's like, yeah, they don't use actual charge of prostitution. But there's plenty of other ways, plenty of other ways. That's the law, right? Sometimes they find loopholes and... They find plenty of loopholes. And defining it can be... And the thing is, prosecutors are are assholes. Let's be honest here. You've got... in, In the UK, it's very common, very, very, very common. When sex workers work together, use the same income to split expenses, they'll prosecute them for pimping each other. They each define each as the pimp of the other. In India, there was a big problem for a while of of sex workers getting harassed and their school, their college age 
children being prosecuted as pimps because they're living on their mother's income and their mother's a sex worker. When they're under 18, of course, it doesn't count. But once they turn 18 and they're being, they're, they're being supported by their mother while they go through college, they were actually being prosecuted as pimps. Now, there was a big enough stink about that to where the state backed down and stopped doing it. But it was very common in the aughts to do that. In Australia, you get stuff like uh, in Queensland. The things that the, the cops love to do is that in Queensland, it's only legal to work in a brothel or solo. So what cops do is they call up sex workers and they try to arrange what we call a duo. They want to see two sex workers at once. When the two girls show up together, they arrest them because it's illegal to work together unless you're in a brothel. Crazy stuff. When you give cops a way to arrest people, they will use it. And that's why we need decriminalization rather than legalization. Because do you know what state in the United States has the highest number of prostitution arrests of any state? It's no. the one you're not going to expect. Nevada. Really? <laughs> what? Wow. Yep. Why? Because basically the cops, what they say is, well, if you want to do this, you can go to a brothel. So basically they sharply persecute anybody who does sex work outside of the brothel, which is 99% of the sex workers in Nevada. Outside because the brothel, County, right? Yeah. Well, the, the, the brothels are too restrictive. They're crazy restrictive. You have to, they, they've loosened it in recent years from what I understand. I've never worked at one, but they have very rigid rules. You have to be there. The brothel can only be out in the desert. You know, it's not in cities. They live on the premises, at least part-time, all this kind of stuff. And the worst part, of course, is that you have to be, you have to have a background check, a criminal background check. Yep. And then your name, your legal name is forever on a list with the cops, forever. And some people just won't go through that. I'm not going to put my legal name on a list to, to do work. There's no way. I'm not going to do it. And so it's most sex workers consider the regime odious. And they won't work under it. And, but so that's why they, they really hit them hard. And it's just easier to be a freelancer at that point. Much easier. And again, the brothels work for some girls. They work great for some girls. But it just, that's the whole point. You need the choice. You need the choice. You need to be able to have the, one of the things about sex work that's so beautiful is that there's so much choice. There's so much of a, a range of, of, of things. You know, I used to know a girl who, um, she actually had the apartment right next door to me. And she did what we call quick visits, fairly low priced, 15 minutes. So it's basically just, it's just sex. So the guy comes in, does his thing, he's out. And I, I said to her, I said, how do you do that? I can't even, I, I, I just can't. I, and she's like, oh, she goes, it's because I'm autistic. She has trouble oh having conversations with strangers it's difficult for her so for her a guy who doesn't expect conversation who just expects boom 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 perfect for her she doesn't need to have a conversation she doesn't need to put on a show she just needs to let's go let's do it boom, doom, 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 doom. goodbye thank you <laughs> for her it works for me it wouldn't that's the beauty of it right is that she can do her thing and i can do my thing and we're both happy and we both make roughly the same amount of money which is it's interesting she does more than i do you know i might do you know in those days i was doing maybe four a week five a week at the most and she was doing two or three a day but 
again, that's it was that was what worked for her. And stripping, like I was not good at stripping. You know, I left it after two years. I know girls who've been stripping for 15 years or more. Wow. Because they're good at it and it works for them, you know, and it works better than than full service for them. It's, and phone it, it, sex. Oh my God, I'm terrible at phone. I can't do phone sex at all. I'm just not. <laughs> just not. I can't do the sexy, sexy top thing. You have a good voice, Maggie. Yeah, but it's the, it's the, it's the, it's, it's a different the, kind of voice for that. That's like, well, no, I mean, I, I think it, it's, it's I, I could tell to have a sexy voice, but, but what it is, is that I'm not good at making up fantasies. Right. Sexual, right. Yeah. On the spur of the moment for people. Oh, I want to hear this. You know, be, I don't even write porn. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a funny thing. You know, one of my, uh, one of the bad reviews for my, for my first book of stories is really funny. I think it's hilarious because the dude bought a book by a, uh, by a hooker. So he figured it was going to all be erotica. And he complained when it wasn't because it's not erotica. So he's a like, one star review. This is not what I expected. I'm like, yeah, dude, whose fault is that? Did he Ain't not mine. write the synopsis? <laughs> nope. No. no, he just saw that it was her and it's like, oh, this is this is perfect. Yeah, right. So I was Maggie McNeil and boom. You know? And, <laughs> and it's like it was gonna be about her, her. No, in this entire book of 38 stories, the first one, there are exactly two sex scenes, and both of them are about a paragraph long and described in language that wouldn't be out of place in a Harlequin romance. <laughs> Seriously. Like not graphic. I I don't do that. I'm just not, it's yeah. not my theme. If you um, want that, you go on, what is that website? Is it Literatica? And just go read those. Like, if that's what you're looking some for. Some people are good at it. Those people are really good yeah. at it. And, no, yeah, it's, and yes. there's nothing against them. Uh, read no, a Nora Roberts book. Oh, gosh. I remember her from being a librarian. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of those, huh? A lot of those. Lots of them. I've never read any of those. I've never read any of them, too. Um, I've just seen them in libraries. Like, oh, my God. You take, like, two shelves. When I when I went through my my period of reading romances in my early teens, they were all gothics. It was always gothics. It was always the ones with the the girl on the front cover in a nightgown running away from hell <laughs> at night. All of them. All of them. I discovered my favorite science fiction novel. Uh, well, one of my favorites, I should say. One of my well, fantasy. One of my favorite fantasy novels because. It was reprinted during that time period with a cover that looked like that. And so I thought it was a gothic, picked it up, read it, and said, this is not a gothic, but it's good. <laughs> I think this was just so great. The fact that, you know, you're, you're, I mean, you've made a life out of promoting awareness is really yeah. important. and. Yeah. The fact that you're talking about and you understand how many sex workers can't be out, that does kind of restrict awareness of this issue. Yes. Yes. So. Yes, it does. And, and and it's also too that when I was in high school, do you remember the TV show Cosmos? Carl Sagan. It was a uh, it was a, a Carl Sagan was a scientist and he he had a, a knack for explaining science in a way oh, that okay. The blue dot. And that was a, yes, same guy. I, and I loved his show. And I wanted to be, when I went to college, I told my advisor, I wanted to be the female Carl Sagan. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> and it's funny because I kind of ended up landing near that in the sense that I've made a career out of explaining 
a subject most people find kind of esoteric in ways that are is approachable. So I'm not, it's not science, but it's, it's, I'm still a, an explainer. You're basically the Bill Nye, Bill Nye of sex work. I'm the Bill Nye of sex work. <laughs> you are. You've made it with easy no, for us. With no bow tie. No bow tie. I was going to say, no bow tie, no, no, no. jackets. <laughs> you got your own style. So I got my style. I yeah. Do. Maggie, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. It's been a good time, ladies. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Yeah, we learned a, a hell of a lot from <laughs> from talking to Maggie, just from how people get into sex work, what their lives are like, how they're honestly kind of normal people and, and the difficulties they face with their work. They're just normal nerds who like Star Trek and I guess just getting their nails done. And that's a- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're not all they're not all nerds. I mean, yeah, yeah, not all. But. I think it was insightful learning from Maggie that people want to do this for work because it's, you know, just like a job. It gives you an income and it gives you flexibility if you're a mom. And that's something that we need to think about before judging somebody. It's skilled work in a way, right? I mean, like you actually have to be decent. I mean, you don't have to be the best at it, but you should be decent at it, right? If you're going to make a living doing it. It's skilled work and it's also niche, right? Because you have your own specific specialties that you may be able to offer. And that's what I found really interesting about the industry is that it's so diverse. I didn't realize how diverse it is. And also the history of the marketing going from putting your ads in newspapers to now, which is online or even through apps. So it's changed a lot. It's really interesting. It is. I think the most important thing that I learned, especially, is how the legalization or how sex work is perceived in different countries. And even in very liberal countries like Sweden or the Netherlands, there's still the stigma attached to it. And I think that's how it is with sex across the board, across all cultures, across the world, is that when it comes to sex, people are just on a different level. Well, I mean, I think there's also a difference between how the Western world, right? Western culture looks at sex versus other cultures. Especially in America, we seem to have this very negative view of sex, right? We, we sort of, I don't know, we, we treat it as, as though it's, it's weird. We do this thing where it's, it's natural, but at the same time, it's unnatural. Yeah. Whereas other places that doesn't happen as much. Also with a sex worker, the amount of agency that she has, the amount of freedom and power that she has was really interesting to hear because when you think about a woman who has similar level of power, like in the corporate world, there is a glass ceiling for women, but in sex work, that's not necessarily the case, but then society still has to put some sort of ceiling. I think what we're just trying to get at is why can't the resources be used to inflict you know, harsh laws onto the public about sex work used in a different way. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's just the allocation of resources. The, oh, it's the, true. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Like the United States government does spend a lot of time and resources into making sure 
that sex work is illegal in almost every single part of the country, except Reno and Nevada. Well, that's the thing. I think the deeper question is, I mean, we kind of answered it. We've kind of posed the question, but really in plain terms, why do people have such a reaction, such a negative reaction to sex work? And honestly, I feel like, yeah, I mean, honestly, let's pose that question to to listeners. I mean, I'm really curious to know how you all think about sex work. Yeah, let us know. Tell us in the comments section. Email us. We want to hear from you. We had such an exciting time speaking to Maggie McNeil today. Thanks, Maggie, for being on the show, for sharing your story and telling us more about sex work. To learn more about Maggie and her work, check out our website for a link to her blog, The Honest Courtesan. You also don't want to miss the books that she's written, and we'll have a full list in the episode show notes. Check them out. And that's it for now. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode, and we will see you next time.